I just knocked my water over. So that happened. But, all the same, the way that I know that I am sophisticated and suave and intellectual and and kind of a, a real thinker is because we get the New Yorker at my house. Now, granted, it's my wife's subscription, and if I open it, it's only ever to look at the comics, but we get the New Yorker at my house, so there's that. And, and a few months ago, I was on a, a flight by myself uh, down to Texas, and I, I always like to read on planes, and, and I was looking through the little gift shop, all the books and magazines, and there was a New Yorker that was just for me, because it was a 90th anniversary all-comics edition. And I thought, well, this is kind of New Yorker. So I took it, I brought it on the plane, I read the whole thing, and you know, it said in the beginning that if you read them consistently without eating, without sleeping, with anything, just read it, ha ha, read the next one, ha ha. If you read all the comics from the almost 100 year history of this magazine, it would take 11 days, non-stop. And so that's why I thought it was so wild there was a comic in that book that I had read before, I'd seen it before. And it was a funny one. It was, uh, first frame had a picture of a, a big bridge, one of these bridges with like the trusses and everything, and it said on it, load limit, eight tons. And then approached a truck, which said on the side of it, as trucks tend to do, its weight, which was eight tons. That's a big truck, I know. And, and it drove onto the bridge, and it was right in the middle of the bridge when a little bird came down and landed <laughs> on the top and the whole bridge just crumbled. And the bird was like, what? And kind of flew away. And, and that was it. And you know, it's a funny comic. It's a, it's a funny idea. It's kind of absurd. But you know, we've all, I think, felt like that bridge at some time or another. Like I am at my capacity. One more little thing. One little bluebird lands on me. Anything will be the straw that breaks the camel's back, the bird that breaks the bridge's back, whatever. And it's all going to come crashing down. And often, when I talk to people, because they'll seek me out and say, I just need to uh, unload on you, Pastor. I'll say, that's what I'm here for. Let's, let's talk. I'll pray with you. And they'll, they'll say, I'm trying to be strong because I know, I know God doesn't give me more than I can handle. And so I, I, can, I can do this. My load limit won't be exceeded. It feels like it is, but it's not. And I will say to them, that's not in the Bible. That's simply not true. The reason it feels like your load limit is being exceeded is because it is. And they'll say, no, I've always been taught that that's the case, that, that God won't let us be burdened by more than we can bear. And I'll say, okay, show it to me. I'm not that sarcastic with people who are hurting. Uh, <laughs> But they'll say, I think it's in there. And sometimes people will come back and say, ah, I found it. It's here in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, For you will only be tempted with that which is common to man. And God will provide a way out that you may escape. So, so we're tempted in a way that we can escape. But notice here three things. First of all, this is not about trials and difficulties. This is not about us being crushed under life. This is about temptation to sin. And when we're tempted, it feels like I have to give in. I have to do what I'm being tempted to do because it's just too much. It's too heavy. No, first of all, that you can't handle it, but that is what is common to man, and that God will give you the strength and he will open a door for you to escape, but only by God's miraculous and providential acting are we saved from ruin in that situation. So that couldn't be further removed 
from, this, from me feeling like life is about to crush me. Like one more straw will break the camel's back. If I tell myself, God won't give me more than I can handle, I'm actually comforting myself, quote-unquote, with something that is not biblical and simply not true. And when he begins 2 Corinthians, within the first chapter, Paul tells us about a time when God let him be burdened with more than he could handle. When he was just about crushed beneath some situation that was so difficult, that was, that was so overwhelming that he actually despaired of life. Let's look at this here together. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and here we are, verse 8, and we're going to look through all the way through verse 11. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now there's a great debate among New Testament scholars and commentators what he's referring to here. What happened in Asia? Asia being a Roman province and not the Asia that that you might be thinking of. And it's possible that he's talking about this thing that went down in Ephesus where he had a mob after him. Do you remember this story? Uh, it's in the book of Acts where, where he arrived in Ephesus and he found there was a thriving silver business there because there were silversmiths making all these idols of the goddess Diana, or, the, or her other name is Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. And he started preaching how idols are nothing and how you can't find salvation in them and how God is greater and bigger and, and spirit and unseen and how you can't put God into a, a little statue and put it into a, a house made by human hands. And people began to believe And they stopped buying these statues. And the silversmiths went nuts. And the main guy, Demetrius, he organized, sometimes this happens, a a riot to happen. And and they said, there's where the guy's going to be. We're going to be there. And they kind of mobbed him. And they were going to do who knows what. And somehow, through God's grace, he was able to escape that and order prevailed But that may be what he's talking about. I don't know. That almost sounds like it's not quite as bad as this description. Others suggest maybe he was stoned at Lystra and that was it. That's not in Asia, but broadly might say it's in Asia. He was actually stoned seemingly to death. You ever have this happen to you? No, I haven't. Uh, And then he got back up. And, and he, when he says that he, he despaired of life, perhaps that's what he's talking about. There's many other things it, it could be because Paul's life is seemingly a, you know, one big long country song of all the stuff that's gone bad to him. He had, he had, uh, certain Jews lying in wait for him in Acts 20. Here later in, in this book, he'll tell us that he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. And there are those who will tell you that he's being metaphorical there, but it seems to me from my reading that he actually really was thrown into some kind of arena with wild beasts and and survived. We also know that his health was horrible. And so perhaps this was an illness that brought him right to death's door. And when he says we, by the way, that's the editorial we, generally. And he's talking about what happened to him as he writes this letter from himself and his companions here. And so, first of all, notice that if you face troubles, if you ever find yourself feeling like that bridge that's at your load limit and you're about to be crushed, don't think... Huh, I must not have enough faith. This stuff is happening to me. I should be doing better than this because I'm on God's team. Don't buy into that nonsense. Look at Paul and his sufferings. Look at Job and his sufferings. His friends said, well, if you were living a righteous life, you'd be doing better. But that wasn't true. 
Look at Christ himself and his sufferings. If having enough faith meant life was cream cheese, Christ would not have faced any of the sorrows and struggles and ultimately the horrifying death that he did. And look at, when, when Paul describes this, it's very emphatic. I begin when I'm preparing a sermon by translating from the original language, making my translation, to familiarize myself with the words that are, that are in the text and how they're used. This is what I came up with here. We were excessively weighed down beyond measure, even beyond what our strength could support. And that word beyond measure, it's hyperbole. You hear in that, our word, Hyperbole? We don't want to make too much of this because it doesn't follow logically, but notice the word that's used here eventually comes to mean something that's ridiculously exaggerated. Something that's just blown completely. When you say, oh man, it's been a thousand years since I ate that pizza. And you have that one friend who says, no it hasn't, you haven't been alive a thousand years. You say, I'm using hyperbole. Well, Paul is describing truly what happened. And the word that he uses is the word that will eventually come to mean that. He's, he's saying beyond what we could have possibly hoped to endure. This brings to mind the pictures of ships being overloaded and sinking into the sea. Or, or you see those video clips of the finish line of a marathon and people come running in and they're just like... And they have no control of their bodies and they're just they're falling all over the place. Another reason not to run marathons. And, and you got to imagine when, that, when those people go down and they're, they're just completely tapped out. What if you were like, get up, you can do it. Get up, run another marathon. You could tell them, you can do it. This marathon is not more than you can endure, but it wouldn't change reality. They've fallen down. And so we, as, we, as we read, even youths, as Terry read in, in the Old Testament reading, even youths grow weary, even young men and Paul's saying, I grew weary and I fainted and I fell and I failed. I knew that it was over for me. As far as human strength and human solutions were concerned, he was out. He, he wasn't trusting in himself. He wasn't saying, I got this. He was now saying, I got nothing. I got nothing here. And he said he felt as if he were sentenced to death. That's it. I'm dead. It's almost like a self-sentence. I give up and I resign myself to death. That was perhaps the worst of all the troubles and dangers and problems that, that Paul has endured. And that means that it is really bad. On the Paul scale, it even qualifies as being bad. And yet, in verse 9 we find that God was using it for good. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That was to make us. God had a purpose in it. And apparently, Paul needed this at this moment. See, we often rely on ourselves until we have no choice but to turn to God. And it seems that when powerlessness comes to light, we're often very annoyed. And we react against it and we rail against it. We don't like not being in control. But as far as the gospel is concerned, recognizing and owning our own powerlessness, our own helplessness, is key. It's key to salvation. You cannot be saved without recognizing your own powerlessness to be righteous. To come to the foot of the cross and say, I have nothing but sin. If I come to Christ and say, listen, I'm most of the way there. Could you spot me the last ten units of righteousness and I'll be good? Those are the 
people that Jesus sent away, the rich young ruler, etc. But if we come to the cross and say, I have nothing, like Paul here says, I got nothing, then he says, that's all right, I died for your sins, you're covered, and we are born again. And it's not as if he says, but this is the last time I'm doing something for you. Don't, don't you come back asking for help with anything else. Now it's your turn to bail me out of something. No. He says, follow me. Follow me. Look to me. I will never leave you or forsake you. If you have a heavy burden on you, come to me and I will give you rest. And as we do this, we come to depend more and more on him and our problems will then drive us to God rather than driving a wedge between us and God. There's a quote that I shared about six months ago, but i got to share it again because it's too perfect here. Charles Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. When life is like roaring waves grabbing you and throwing you into the rocks, he says, I have come to learn that the rock they're throwing me into is the rock of ages, the one who raises men from the dead, the one who created me. And as they throw me into him, I learn to rest on him, on the solid rock. He's, this rock is the one who raises the dead. You know, we find that even early on in, in the Old Testament, before Christ came and died and rose again. Uh, when we read Hebrews, and it talks about this story of Abraham and his son Isaac, when he was commanded to, to sacrifice Isaac, and they were on their way up, he said to the attendants, we will go up and worship and we will come back down. And he knew at the top God had commanded him to sacrifice his son his own. And he didn't know that God would stop him at the last moment and provide a ram and basically say, here's a picture of what I do for you. I provide the substitute so that you can live on the very mountain, by the way, where Christ himself would later die. All, not knowing any of that, he said, we'll go up, we'll come back down. Hebrews says he believed that if, if need be, God would raise him from the dead. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being cast into the fiery furnace saying, hey, our save us. And he might. But even if he doesn't, we won't worship your bogus statue. We just, we can't. We won't do that. They believed that God had power even over death. Thinking perhaps in the words of Job, when he said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Even after my skin has been destroyed, even after my body has been, I will see God. Because God is the God who raises the dead. He's the Lord of life and death. And he's told us again, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. It's kind of the opposite of being a human father. Where you want slowly but surely for your children to rely less and less on you, right? I mean, it's nice when they need you. But you don't want, you know, when, I, when I'm 90 and I'm on my deathbed, I don't want 60-year-old Calvin being like, hey, I need you to bail me out here. No, you want them to be able to stand on their own two feet and less and less for them to need you. As we follow Jesus and we mature and grow in the faith, he wants us more and more to rely on him. And this description of God as the one who raises the dead kind of undergirds the rest of the book and it informs how Paul talks about his own apostleship and all that's going on in Corinth. So kind of maybe put that one in your back pocket and we'll see it come back later. 
But when, when difficulty comes up in my life, when I feel again like that bridge, when I feel like one more, one more little pebble and I'm going to burst and I comfort myself, I console myself by saying, but don't forget, Zach, God won't let me be burdened with more than I can handle. I'm doing several things. I'm actually doing seven things by my count. None of them good. All of them perhaps should serve as a warning. First of all, I'm putting words in God's mouth. He didn't say this stuff. I'm telling myself he did. This reminds me a little bit of what the serpent did from the very beginning. Did God really say? And when he, and when he told the lie, it was, it was close. It wasn't off by 180 degrees. It was close. You will not surely die, for he knows that on the day that you eat this, you will become like God, knowing good from evil. Yeah, you will, but you will die. And so there's, there's this little twist here. I'm putting words in God's mouth that actually say the opposite of what God wants from me. He wants me not to say, I got it, I can handle it, but to turn to him and cling to him. So first, that's what I'm doing. I'm putting words in God's mouth. Secondly, I'm setting myself up to fail by trying to handle things on my own. It might go well for a while, but eventually I'm going to have a load that's too heavy for the load limit on my soul, and I am going down. And that can be a good thing too, by the way. We can find God in the, the ashes and the wreckage of what, that when we fall, but why, why not avoid it from the beginning by clinging to Him, by going to Him, as He has said, so He can give us rest, so He can hold and bear our burdens with us. Thirdly, I'm wasting the refuge and the help that I have in Him at my disposal for specifically this sort of time of trouble. Why try and do it without it? I, we, we had a dog. I miss her dearly. Her name was Sasha. She was a sweetheart and it's dumb as a box of rocks. Just the dumbest dog you've ever met. And we, we, she loved being outside and she didn't like ever coming in. So one day we said, let's just get her, uh, you know, we'll buy one of these kits and build a dog house. So we bought the nicest one they had because she was, we didn't have a kid yet. And we were like, we want this to, you know, this, this to be good for you. We want to be, want to be good dog parents. And we put it together and we, we put it outside and it looked just like a nice little house. Uh, it looked very similar to our house. It was very cute. And there it was. It was warm inside and dry and it began to rain. And we went inside and we watched and Sasha just laid there. And the water just came down, and she once in a while looked at the... And we're like, what are you doing? And eventually we brought the house back to the floor. Now imagine it was acid rain or fire and brimstone or something falling, and she, she had that right there, feet away from where she lay, but chose not to use it. That is what we're doing when we say to ourselves, ah, I can handle this. God won't let me, God won't let me need him. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swell, no matter what happens, our God is a refuge. Take refuge in Him. Fourthly, when I tell myself God won't let me have more than I can handle, Piling more confidence onto the flesh, onto the, the flesh, onto myself. You know, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. I, I'm, putting, I'm putting all my eggs in exactly the wrong basket. Jeremiah 17, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert 
and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Sounds fun. And we choose to dwell there rather than dwelling in the strong tower, the refuge that is our God, the God who raises the dead. Fifthly, along with that, I'm choosing close myself off from any other source of help that might come that God might in his providence bring to me. You know the old joke about the rowboat, right? The guy's on the top of the building, the water's rising, and someone comes into the boat. Hey, hop in. No, no, I prayed and I think God will save me. All right, weirdo, goes away. Helicopter comes, something else. And, and then he dies, he drowns, and God's help. I sent a rowboat, a helicopter. I sent you all these, and you just ignored them. God will give us in the community of saints... In where he has placed you, in his providence, he will give us opportunities to comfort one another, to help one another. And if we close ourselves off, we're, we're locking ourselves off from blessings and we're denying the other person the blessing of helping us, which is how it's supposed to work in the family of faith. When I acknowledge my own need, my own frailty, my limits, and pray that God will help me, then I'll open my eyes and see how God might do that even through my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'll tell you what, a good half of the time when I hear someone say to me, well, pastor, I know that God won't, God won't give me more than I can handle, but it's in the context of, let me explain why you haven't seen me in church for the last six months. I have been going through something difficult and I didn't want anyone to know. And I didn't want to bring it to, a, to the community of faith in prayer. I didn't want to burden anyone else with it. I didn't want us to share it together and lift it up to God together. I wanted to handle it myself. And so I became cut off, not only from him, but from his church. Sixthly, I wind up giving up a lot of joy in my life. What I do is I have to build a really tough skin, a thick skin. And I, and I, have, to, I have to kind of toughen up to, to an absurd degree if I'm going to handle on my own all that life throw at me. Have you ever heard of the bathysphere? It's one of these 1930s, like, goofy-looking, uh, deep-sea contraptions. Uh, this is back when guys would put on the helmet with, like, the hose and, like, the door and go down, and they could go down, like, 100 feet, and they could look at things, and it was, it was amazing new technology. But if they went down as deep as they wanted to, I think their eyes would pop out and their brains would explode. Horrible things would happen. And, and so someone developed this sphere with incredibly thick, inches-thick steel, and it was lowered by a cable down into the depths and there would shine a light and they could look out and see things they had never seen living all around them. And what they saw was not other bathyspheres made out of super thick steel, but fish with soft skin and scales. There's eyeballs right there, not popping out at all. Now, how were they surviving? Well, they had equal pressure inside to match what was outside. They've been designed for it. Well, listen, as Christians, we don't need to grow the super thick steel skin and say, oh, that's, I'm going to be harumph, grumbly, and I'm going to deal with this all by myself, and you're going to know I'm a martyr. No, we are able to embrace joy in the midst of this because inside we have one who is greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Inside, we have the Holy Spirit. We have God giving us strength, granting us rest, bearing our burdens with us. We can have lives of joy, as Paul did, even in the midst of affliction. And finally, seventh, I'm putting myself at great risk of becoming bitter toward God. And I've seen this, and you may have too. 
God, I know you said you'll never give me more than I can bear, but how much more do you think I can take? It's got to stop at some time. Come on, God. And, and God's going, I'm doing this, just like with Paul, so that you will not trust in yourself, but rather in me. I'll keep on adding until I need, as long as I need you, so that you will come to that conclusion. And when we say, God, I know you said, he didn't say that. Someone lied to you. Probably they didn't mean to lie, but it is a lie. It's a lie of hell. And I'm sorry if you've told that lie. It's simple. Repent. It sounds harmless, but incredibly dangerous. It takes all of our trust off of him and puts it back on ourselves. And when Paul looks at this kind of affliction, and, and Paul had, he had the struggle. Look at his background, his pedigree. He had studied under the greatest rabbi living in his time. He'd been famous before his conversion and infamous after and then famous again amongst the church. He had all this authority when he spoke, people listened, and he had a tendency, just as Peter had a tendency to trust his muscles and his daring, well, Paul had a tendency to trust his religious upbringing and to trust in his training and trust in his own spirituality. And he looks back and he recognizes, God, God was doing this so that I wouldn't trust in me anymore but turn and trust in Him. We read in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes unto the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, the God who raises the dead. Verse 10, he goes on. And you know, he, he goes from, this is what God was doing through my struggles to his trust that God will deliver him. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. And, and he's, he delivered us not from this trouble, apa in, in Greek, but out of, ek. Out of, meaning, Paul went through it. And God delivered him out the other end. Triumphantly he came out of the trouble. Not with his own triumph, but with God's. He's been with him. He will be with him. The King James is a wonderful translation here. Who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver and in whom we trust will yet deliver us. And that's what biblical hope is. It's not this blind, wishful thinking. Well, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm just going to say God will take care of it. Rather, it's informed confidence in God's promises for the future based on his faithfulness in the past. And this future deliverance, oh, we see it even later in Paul's ministry. 2 Timothy 4, this is the very last words that Paul pens that we know of before he dies. 2 Timothy 4, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. That's passive. I was rescued. Now he says, I fought those wild beasts in Ephesus. We don't know how that went down, but we know that ultimately, when he's talking about how God grabbed him and saved him, he was rescued from the... Can you imagine if Daniel, when he was thrown into the lion's den, would have looked around and been like, 16, 17, 18. Well, God won't give me more lions than I can handle. Bring it on. No, he turned to God and God rescued him from the jaws of the lion by closing them. And you know, there's another side to this. There's this deliverance side. We read in Jeremiah 17, I read earlier, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. But he goes on to say, blessed is the man 
who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its root stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain. He finishes this passage, this introduction to 2 Corinthians by saying, You must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And you know, Paul frequently asks for prayer, and he's an apostle. Can you imagine that? An apostle needing prayer, asking regular Christians to pray for him. It will build him up, it will build them up, and they together will all give thanks when they see their prayers answered. If it's all on me, I can do it. It's, it's, it's within my reach. God will, will not give me more than I can handle. Well, I'm unlikely to, to pray. I'm unlikely to ask you to pray. And now I'm going to miss out on being sanctified by my prayers. And now I'm going to miss out on the praise and thanks that together we could offer when our prayers are answered. Paul sees this more and more clearly and, and preaches it more and more emphatically as he gets closer to the end of his life. I think this is a normal thing. We see uh, this happening in our own lives on a smaller scale. It's, it's getting close to tax preparation time. The last year is over. If you're organized, you're starting to gather things together. And it's funny how the perspective changes throughout the year. Every time you get money, you're like, yeah, paycheck. Oh, unexpected money. I got stuff coming in. That's great. Whenever you, you have to part with money, you're like, that's a little painful. Even money you want to part it's sometimes painful to do. And, and especially you look at things like your mortgage interest. Do you ever look at how little of them? After 11 years, we're still like, this much goes to the actual principal and this much is mortgage interest. And it's like, ouch, don't take anymore. But at tax time, every paycheck is like, oh, I got to pay on that and on that and on the, oh, ouch, ouch. And every every offering check to a church or gift to a charity like oh that's a good one don't have to pay tax on that or that or that and look at all this wonderful mortgage interest that i can deduct it's backwards and i believe that we see more and more as we look back you know the things that threw us into those rocks the the rock of ages those are the things that gave us the opportunity to be formed into the image of Christ, that gave us the, the chance to learn to, to hold on tight to Him. There's an old, old sermon illustration uh, about a, a tree that had vines wrapped around it. And on one side, they'd been pulled, pulled away as the wind would come through at, at the, the same angle most every day, come through the trees, and it would kind of pull them off. But on the other side, they were more or less embedded in the tree. Because the wind would blow them and the rain would beat them against the tree and they held on tight. And that's what we see happening when we turn to God and we don't say, hey, I got it. I know you told me I've got this and you won't give. We remember, no. Where does my help come from? The maker of heaven and earth. The God who raises the dead. It's a wonderful old hymn that says, God has not promised skies always blue, flowers strewn pathways all our life through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. Let's go to that God now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do confess that often we tell ourselves we can handle it. 
Lord, we, we don't want to be helpless. We don't want to be powerless. We don't want to have to turn to you in the flesh. Lord, may we in the Spirit, may you grant us the desire to turn to you. Just as we threw ourselves at the foot of the cross for salvation, may we throw ourselves to you for help, for rest, knowing that you are the God who has raised the dead and who will raise us on the last day. Lord, we pray that we would be people who don't wait until all else fails and turn to God and say, oh, has it come to this? But rather turn to you daily, knowing that you are a God who loves us and cares for us and will protect us and save us from the lion's mouth. In your holy name we pray. Amen.